this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making movies. Hey, everybody, I'm Aaron Jalabolo, and welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. Today on the program, we're talking to a legendary screenwriter. His credits include The Nickel Ride, The Drowning Pool, The Onion Field, Forrest Gump, for which he won an Oscar, The Postman, for which he won a Razzie, The Horse Whisperer, and one of my favorite films of all time, The Insider, followed by Ali, Munich, The Good Shepherd, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. He's also worked in television and seen not one, but two sea changes, first with HBO and then with Netflix and House of Cards. And much more recently, he wrote A Star is Born for director Bradley Cooper, Dune for Denis Villeneuve, and the new Western being directed by Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. He was also a producer on the Oscar-nominated Mank, directed by David Fincher from a script by Fincher's father. And I owe Mank for being introduced to none other than Eric Roth. Eric, thank you very much for being here and talking with me. Glad to. So one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you is because I think most what most people don't understand is that, uh, you know, for a screenwriter, you're really writing the first conjuring of a movie that's going to be made. You know, you've said the architecture, the ship, that's the screenwriter's contribution. But I think that's slightly self-deprecating because when I read your scripts, I feel like you're seeing the movie and it's your version of the film when you're writing it. I think I think you're right about that. I mean, that yeah, I, I wasn't really being self-deprecating, but I think you, you know, you build a boat kind of and then the director takes us on its journey. I mean, you hope you point him in the right direction, uh, giving him the right crew and you know all the details of the sales and everything else but uh, uh yeah it's true there's no question that when i begin something particularly that's original um even even so to some extent adaptations it is what i'm conjuring the movie to look like you know and then the director may change that obviously and uh, uh it's, it goes through a number of incarnations since it's such a uh, communal form of uh, art um but uh yeah, I mean, when, I, when, it's, when it's pure and raw and it's just day one, you're trying to figure out what's the best way to tell this story. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's very refreshing, I think, too, to to read your scripts because it's kind of, for me, it's sort of, it reads a little bit like novelist prose, but then also sort of like a playwright's dialogue. It's very indirect and very subtextual. And it's very inspiring, you know, for I think for any writer who hasn't read your scripts, they should because it you really write with real confidence in oh, terms of you. oh, you're you're very welcome. Yeah, I mean, I think uh I think, you know, I've always called it a bastardized form of writing. I still think it is. I think it's I think it's an incredible craft to be good at it. And maybe I'm not sure it's an art form. Because it doesn't, I don't think it can exist much without being made into something, you know, it's just mm. a visual rendering. Mm. Um, so uh, I guess it's artful to do it, you know. I don't know beyond that. I mean, 
if I had to talk about me, I would say that I'm a frustrated novelist, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, screenplays, as you just said, are neither, neither nor. Mm. You know, you, can, you don't have to fill the page. You can use dots and dashes and ellipses. And uh, so some sort of bastardized form of it. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of want to go back to the, to the beginning a little bit because I, I've heard you say that you, you said you never had a room of your own. And I, I just wanted to talk about sort of where you were born and, and, and where you grew up and, and, you know, just, just sort of go back to the beginning a little bit and how that might, you know, have formed you as a writer. Well, I, um, I, I never did. I, I, I was talking to somebody about this, that I never have. I've always shared a room. So I either shared a room with my brother um, and then I shared a room with my uh, first wife and that one for many years and then my next wife, you know, and etc. And then the person I live with now. So, but that's a good uh, 75 years worth of never having my own room. Uh, grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Um, not much money. Um, kind of tough neighborhood. I um, uh, was, I got the hell beat out of me going to school. We weren't the last, uh, I, I'm not, we weren't, if we were the last white family, we certainly were probably one of the last Jewish families. Uh, and um, in high school, out of nowhere, they kind of yanked me and said, you're, we're going to go to California. We want you to, you know, you're coming. And I said, what, in, high, in my senior year, and I said, wait, you know, this is ridiculous. Let me stay with my aunt or grandma. And no, you're coming. And so we came out here in my senior year of high school. And it was, you know, it wasn't a tragedy. And it was certainly interesting to be here. But uh, I don't think I made friends for seven, eight months. You know what I'm saying? It was uh, yeah. all, all very, very different than the world I've been in. And then I went uh, you know, went to a couple of schools after college. And so after that point, life became kind of regularized in a sense. Uh, I went to uh, Santa Barbara as an undergraduate and I went to Columbia as a graduate. Um, as an English major, always wanted to be a writer. Um, uh, started taking film classes at Columbia, uh, but more, more so being active in, uh, there was sort of an underground film movement uh, uh, in a place called the Millennium Film Workshop. This is like 1968, I guess. Whenever the strawberry statements, <laughs> whenever they closed down Columbia, whatever year that was. Wow. And uh, I got uh, you know involved with, uh, you know, I, I actually worked as a crew member for Bob Downey Sr. Uh, I remember Bob Downey Jr. as an eight-year-old doing things he shouldn't be doing. Um, Wow. Uh, Ed M. Schweiler, uh, some Andy Warhol stuff with those, his directors. Um, and then I was making sort of my own shorts. And I thought at that point, I may want to be a director. And uh, I, I never felt like I really, I always felt like, like I'd be a B director, that I would never be an A director. I never felt like I had the vision for it, the patience mm-hmm. or the math, because I think you really have to be able to uh, not only stage things, but have to, be able to match, you know, and not mm-hmm. cross lines. And, um, I, I won an award or two with a student short, and so I did all right. I was not bad at it, um, but it wasn't uh, writing was what I enjoyed most. It sounds like you got into this very cool underground movement, and and I think early on it seems like maybe you were drawn to the community of filmmaking and the collaboration of filmmaking. And and is that is that I would say that's true. Yeah, I mean, it was a f- place I felt very much at home. Um, I love movies. I mean, I was. Uh, kind of weaned on uh, going to the Brooklyn Paramount Theater and sitting in the balcony with uh, a grandfather of mine spoke, didn't speak much English, but spoke Yiddish. 
and uh, we'd watch. Uh, I mean, it was like always a kind of uh, important experience for me that I saw um, the the balcony at the Brooklyn Paramount was had stars on the ceiling, so you felt like you were outside. When I remember distinctly seeing uh, the original War of the Worlds and scared the hell out of me, that it felt like we were right in the midst of, you know, aliens invading Earth. And uh, uh, but I, I always, I, I always felt like it was sort of a warm bath in the movie. I just, I was, I, I love being washed over by whatever was scared or you know, uh, elated, and tearful, and joyful. And, and just for people who don't know that kind of a movie theater, was it sort of one of the original old movie palaces? Yeah, it was a really old palace. It was like yeah. uh, um, giant. I don't know how many people. I have to go look up how many. It probably held 3,000 people. Wow. You know? Wow. And, um, uh, and, and I also went to, uh, you know, the Saturday matinees to see the serials, you know, yeah. the, the westerns and all. And I just loved the whole thing, you know, yeah. and I always wanted to somehow – I mean, I think I wanted to be a novelist to begin with, and this was something that struck my fancy, and I, was, I, was, I thought I was pretty good at it. I was, I'm very visually oriented, and I have a very, um, I think, pretty unique memory for details. I could probably tell you, not, not the savant thing, but I could probably tell you if you told me, you know, if I remember, related experience to you what the weather was like. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? What it, when I, so I remember what things looked like. And what it felt like to some extent, and um, so I'm probably skip mix, mixing years up a little bit because I, I tend to a little bit now as I've gotten older. But um, eventually, I got married very young, had children very young, um, and I went back eventually to UCLA, um, and I was in uh, I was in the folklore department. But I, but I liked writing. I wrote a screenplay. I'm just I started getting the highlights, headlines, headlines, I guess, and I. I wrote a screenplay for a contest they had there called Samuel Bowen Writing Awards. Sure, sure. Quite prestigious. Yeah. yeah. And I actually won it, but I tied with a guy named Colin Higgins, who wrote Harold and Maude. That was a script he had written for that. And then wow. he went on to write Nine to Five. And I think tragically he died of AIDS, I think. Um, and um, that got me an agent, which was a giant thing. Giant. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I was kind of off and running. I'm, I'm leaving out some stuff, I think. Before that, I made a documentary on the Poor People's March to Washington, D.C. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, um, and that was a very well-received movie. Um, anyway, but I say for my writing career, that was uh, the highlight. And then, uh, and, I, and, I, and it was a wonderful period because, uh, when, especially when we were editing this documentary, in the room next door was Roman Polanski editing uh, Rosemary's Baby. And in the next other room, I don't know what he was editing at the time, but Hal Ashby was there. A pro, might have been Thomas Brown up there, but I don't remember. Um, and, t- and I became, you know, I became friendly with Polanski and uh, I haven't seen him forever, but uh, particularly friendly with Hal Ashby. And we were friends till he passed away. Oh, and Hal Ashby was such an, such an amazing artist and such a... Yeah, amazing man. Amazing. amazing. And also, I think, a super underrated... Uh, technical master, you know, for yeah, all his sort yeah. of how he made it look so easy. Yeah, uh, that, you know, he learned it from editing. Though he was a wonderful right. editor, I yeah. think he won a Oscar for editing. But he worked with Norman Jewison, who was a yes. really nice man, and that was a lovely experience. Um, and um, yeah. Oh, just to ask, because I'm just curious, were you also at UCLA at the same time as Francis Coppola? And uh, uh, I, I wasn't quite. I, I, they were. 
I, I think, to, I, well, here's the thing. So I, I don't quite know, and here's why. I never <laughs> went to classes. I really, I had already, I, I, I had a movie made in 1970. So I actually had a movie made earlier than that. So uh, so that's why I said I'm confused on some dates. Right. I know my daughter was born in 1970. Um, <laughs> and that got me, so maybe my first movie was made in 1971, but I, I didn't, I was in folklore, oddly, and my wife at the time, uh, Dearlander, who's passed away, but uh, she was an archaeologist, and we had our. We were actually thinking of maybe one or two things. I thought maybe I should go to medical school, and that didn't ever work out. And but or maybe we would just be folk sort of. Like she was an archaeologist and interested in folklore, also. Maybe we'd go to. We talked about going to like Wales and studying folklore and that kind. Mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. I love storytelling. I guess is the bottom line. Of course. And anyway, I, I got an agent and the agent got me a little tiny job on a little love story that I got to write with an odd, interesting man who was the um, named Jim Collier, who was the director for uh, um, uh, Billy Graham, the, the, uh, tele- the evangelist. Yeah, sure, sure. He sure. did his sort of religious film, but he also wanted to do a lay film. And I wrote a love story for him. Um, and it was, they shot it in Israel and it was a wonderful time we had doing that. And, uh, it was released for like two days, you know, in America. Wow. Um, but yeah, I had no real cachet, but that got me started. And honestly, I mean, this is how blessed I am. I think I have worked steadily since then, wow. you know, so we're talking probably almost 60 years. I mean, close to it. So I know that the big, the big job I got at that point was, uh, I had become friends through, um, I think the AFI uh, with Stuart Rosenberg, who was a kind of a known director. He did Cool Hand Luke, and he's a very nice man. And he liked my work to some extent. Some of the things I, I wrote a couple other things that obviously didn't get done. And um, he asked me to come rewrite Drowning Pool. Mm-hmm. And I just told a story the other day where I, uh, uh, Paul Newman was a star, and um, Joanna Woodward and Tony Franciosa and a couple other well-known people and. So I went down to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. And I would think I would, I don't think I was 20 yet. If I was, I was just 20. And I, wa- I had a brand new pair of corduroys and a brand new briefcase and everybody sitting there waiting kind of, uh, and Paul Newman said, our savior is here. <laughs> I'm savior. But I became friends with, uh, I mean, it was amazing. I became friends with, uh, with Newman for probably, I mean, the rest of his life. I and mean, we, we, we were then, uh, we always kind of checked in with each other, and he was one of the more amazing people I'd ever met. You know, yeah. Um, and, I, and through that, I got to write eventually Onion Field, which is a whole other story, which uh, Stuart Rosenberg was supposed to direct, and he got fired, and they brought on Harold Becker. Um, but uh, I, I'm mixing up times of things, you know. I mean, no, I, no, I, I totally understand. I had other movies before. I mean, I had a movie that got made with uh, Bob. Uh, um, uh, Robert Mulligan, who uh, had written, who had done, um, uh, he had done um, Fear Strikes Out, and of course he did Who uh, um, Radley, you know. Um, oh, to, uh, movie, yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird, and yeah, he did yeah. um, a thing called Comanche, a Cherokee movie. I mean, he he was a real '50s well-known director. He was a wonderful guy, and this was a small little noir film I wrote called originally it was called uh, Fifty Fifty. And it was about kind of an, ang- it came out of an anxiety dream I had about sort of death. And uh, and it goes to show at that time, it was like that 50 seemed like 
getting old. I, I was in my 20s, you know. <laughs> and, but I felt, what would be the worst profession for somebody who's afraid of his mortality? And I put him as, as a low-level mafia guy. And it was a little noir, um, but I think it's pretty good on that. Uh, actually, like Quentin Tarantino says, you know, one of the really fine noir movies. Oh, I have to watch it. I'm embarrassed yeah. I haven't seen watch it. Watch it. I, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think it's great, but it's quite good. It stars, uh, it was supposed to start George C. Scott. So it was a big deal. And, huh. um, and then he bowed out for whatever reasons. I don't know anymore. And um, Bob hired a, a, an actor and actually a playwright named Jason Miller. And Jason Miller was in The Exorcist. He played the yes, yeah. Well, he's also in The Nickel Ride. I mean, the- I'm saying he's a star yeah, of The yeah, Nickel Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, the movie yeah, I'm talking yeah. about. Yes, yes, yes. He, um, uh, he also won the Pulitzer Prize for a play he wrote called The Championships. And he was also married to Jackie Gleason's daughter. And he had, one of his sons is a well-known movie star whose name escapes me. It's not the same name. He was married to um, Reese Witherspoon. Um, and you would know his name. I and I'm sorry because I, nice I I have seen the Nickel Ride. I I thought you said for a second the movie was called Fifty Fifty. I don't know why well, it was originally. No, it was, that was the original oh. title, and that was uh, that was the sort of play okay. on words about someone becoming you know fifty. You know, got it, got it, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Mulligan. I don't. I never was wild about that title, the Nickel Ride. That was his idea about kind of he he had grown up during kind of uh, uh, an era of fairs and things when in, in uh, like probably the early 1900s or something. Well, and it's such, and it's a fascinating movie because Miller is awesome. Also, uh, the, the country Western guy who is his, is sort of the Bo heavy. Hopkins. Bo Hopkins is fantastic yeah, as yeah. usual. Yeah. I mean, just, just steals the screen and then it's shot by Jordan Cronenworth. And well, that's, it, uh, that's uh, yeah, one of the great yeah, things yeah. in my life that I got to be friendly and get to know him. Oh, really? And I had his son film a movie of mine. Of course. Uh, so <laughs> the one behind me here. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. He's one of the great cinematographers, and so is his son. Yeah, and it was a, a wonderful experience. It, we got to go to Cannes. We, had, we you know, we can we we went there, and the movie did two cents worth of business. But uh, <laughs> it was I was always actually the, and the art director was a guy who did uh, um, Blade Runner, Larry Paul. Right, um, right. So it was a hell of a group of people, and it was a teeny little movie. Um, and, but what I always take I, when I when when I do things where I show kind of clips from my movies, mm -hmm. I always show a clip from that movie because it has a tremendous nightmare scene where Jason Mill Jason's uh, under tremendous pressure because he has certain responsibilities and the mobs kind of he at least thinks they're trying to kill him and mm -hmm. uh, he's up in a cabin and by a lake and. Um, this cowboy type who's sort of a guy who's supposed to work for the mob as a, you know, a hitman type. Mm -hmm, it, com mm -hmm. it comes to see them. And, but you don't know, he, he's sitting on a couch when it starts and, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And, and then we have this whole scene where all of a sudden he ends up shooting, uh, uh, um, uh, our her hero's uh, wife, whose name was George in the movie as a woman named Linda Haynes, the actress. Anyway, uh, and it turns, and then all of a sudden he wakes up. It was a, it was a nightmare, a day or daymare, if you will. And it was a, it was incredibly done because you could never. It was seamless, seamless. Yeah, yeah. And and I think what's it, so I, I want to use this opportunity to talk about something else, just as far as craft goes, because you talked about coming up with this as a, as a dream, right? And and I think what's really interesting, I've heard you say before, uh, particularly about writing Benj on Benjamin Button, getting up in the middle of the night and thinking about your family and thinking about your children and sort of being in a dream state and writing, you know, and, 
And Stephen King talks a lot about writing being self-hypnosis, you know, and, and having to get in that zone. And how do you think you balance, you know, the craft of screenwriting with still trying to find that magic and that mystery? I think, I think, I think both of it's just the process of writing. I used to be able to, I think I still could. I, I used to write in my living room with children. I had a lot of children, children running around, people coming in and out. And I was able to get into a little fugue state and just, you know, stay with what I was writing. So it never bothered me that there were distractions particularly. Um, I, I do find that music helps uh, sometimes if you want to. I, I, sometimes I'd listen to the most ridiculously mawkish duets and things that would somehow make things go. <laughs> like I remember doing it for Forrest Gump, something about their relationship with some somehow linked to some this sweet song, but like a, I'm going to make it up, Willie Nelson um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a duet with, um, I forget her name now, but, uh, you know, a well-known country Western uh, woman singer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that always kind of speaks to me of something. But it's all from, you know, Stephen King knows better than anybody, but that it's all kind of grist for the mill, you know, whatever mm-hmm. kind of is able, you're able to utilize it moves you touches you and you're able to uh articulate um it's all it's all from everything anything i read you know i'll find a way to put it in if it's and if it's something specific like a great line of dialogue mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. i mean i I'm, I'm going to use this in something someone the other day was telling me about uh, a mother who was very tough on a, a young woman who uh threw her out of her house basically but her line of dialogue to the woman was, I hope you can find some place to sleep that's flat. And I think it's a great, I mean, in one spell swoop, you're talking wow. about finding a place to sleep. You're not sleeping on a hill. You're, you know, you're, and it's like, it was pretty great. I mean, so I'm going to yeah. use something. Yeah. Too good that's, a line to say so many things. That's pretty great. That, yeah. that, that always reminds, that reminds me a little bit of that great line in the conversation when, uh, in the beginning, when they're looking at the homeless man and she says, you know, I always, I always wonder, uh, uh, you know, what their mother's think, what their mother's thinking right now, uh, you know, and, and you j- it just crushes you, you know, how a couple of things that recently have, uh, have, um, started to come seeping into my, which I'll use in my work, uh, one is, I just read a statistical thing, um, and I don't remember the statistics, statistics very well, but it's, you'll, you'll get it. They say that, you know, you have two parents, you have four grandparents, you have eight great-grandparents, and then you have another set of, whatever you want to call them, second set of great-grandparents that made those people. And you go back, it, it, if you go long enough, you can go where there's, like, they say over 400 years, you will be like, 4,000, 8,000, I don't know what the number was, 8,000 people that had to stay alive, had to make certain decisions, didn't get hit by a horse, didn't get, uh, uh, decided not to have children to make you. In other words, you're not, because think of all the children that aren't born. So it's a pretty incredible idea of what it took by, you know, chance, survival of the fittest, all those things and just simple decisions. I think I'll sleep with her tonight and you happen to get her pregnant, whatever. Right. Or get right. pregnant or, you know, and the it's an amazing idea. Absolutely amazing. And the other I mean, is a really corny that I read this and I didn't know this was well known. So I, I, I had to withdraw it for a way, but they asked Johnny Cash what a perfect morning was, a perfect oh, day. Yes, yes, and yes. you've seen that quote, right? Yeah. I didn't know. I thought, wow, well, that's, that's 
That's yeah. okay. That's okay. You can still you can still use it. You can. <laughs> well, I probably won't only because I guess too well known now. But true. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't well known to me. You know? Right. Right. And well, I, that, that also brings me another point I wanted to talk about because I know I know you've spoken about how Elvis Mitchell when you you had a great interview with Elvis Mitchell and he and he sort of said you know I think you write about loneliness, and I think that's I think that's true to a certain degree. But I got to be honest with you, going back and reading all the script, reading a lot of the scripts and watching a lot of the movies, I, I really think you write a lot about love uh, and uh, and about people. Uh, you know, and their hearts and their sacrifices and our need to connect. And I think the interesting thing is that I think it's the duality of, of your work, which is sort of loneliness and connection, you know, it's as well as selfishness and selflessness. And mm-hmm. I just, I think it really goes through all the work. And I just think, I think the, the love part of it is one of the reasons for me, your work resonates so greatly with me, you know, because well, I think, I mean, for me, I feel like I can write sort of be human, you know, so uh, when I'm good and subtextual, as you say, and I can make it off the point, then I'm pretty good. And I think you do get in most of my movies some emotional resonance out of it, you know. So somebody's uh, part of that. I, I, I'll attribute in a way to Michael Cimino, even though it's, it wasn't specifically, but that I rewrote a movie called Year of the Dragon, mm-hmm. and um, I saw Michael had given Mickey Rourke a wallet that had all the stuff his character would have a, you know, a draft card, a driver's license, a photograph of some kid that he had or didn't have, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, even a fortune from a fortune cookie that he found was clever or something. And he just put it in his pocket while uh, Mickey work and he probably never looked at it even, but it, it just made you feel that everybody has to be distinctive. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And everybody has some other life going on. And that's mm-hmm. where I think you have to bring your humanity into these kind of characters, you know? Um, and if you can do without uh, without exposition, which is the hardest thing of all, and and people right. who are not great writers rely, they just hang their hat on exposition, and mm-hmm. and to be the really great writers and the really great ones, particularly novelists and playwrights, uh, will write about other things that are not what's on point, and you you get the point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. Yeah. But but even just hearing you say about how you would write in your living room with all your kids around you, uh, you know, it's a great scene. You don't really need much more to see sort of how you. Well, it, was, it had a yeah. drawback because I remember um, I would leave my work sitting like just uh, I don't know <laughs> if I had it in a box, but I had it in a pile of shit, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and a woman was our housekeeper came and threw everything away, and I couldn't find. I mean, I had sixty pages of onion peel. <laughs> oh God. It was okay. I mean, I got to start over, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I typed then. That was before. Uh, you know, we use word processing at all. And, um, it was, uh, yeah. So, and, and, okay. So I, cause I know, I don't want to, you know, there's so much to talk about, but I wanted to kind of get to, you know, some of the movies, a lot of the movies rather, because I, I think another thing people don't really understand about a screenwriter, particularly an artist like yourself is that the, the amount of time, how closely you work with directors and how long you live with the movie, you know, everybody from David Fincher to Scorsese, you know, uh, uh to, to Paul Newman, to Spielberg and Michael Mann. I, I, so I just want to kind of talk about, I guess, each of the movies in relation to how you work with those directors. And I wanted to start with Rhapsody in August. Good. Because, I'm glad you do. I'm yeah. glad you know that. Oh, uh, I know. I, 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 I rewatched it. My, I don't know if it's my proudest, but it's certainly a proud thing, you know? Oh, man. I mean, Akira Kurosawa. Here's, here's how absurd it was, is that it, the absurdity was, I don't remember what I was working on. I may have been working on Forrest Gump or I may have been working on a movie that just worked out so well called Mr. Jones. 
but uh, um, he called, I think it might've been Mr. Jones. And the reason being, because he called me because he wanted Richard Gere to star in, as a American in this particular movie. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it was Mr. Jones. And Richard mm-hmm. Gere had been in a movie where I was certainly working on called Mr. Jones that it became kind of a mess. But um, he asked me to, he wanted the American character to be real, you know, and mm-hmm. sound real and be worried and concerned and have a backstory of something that's real. So, you know, <laughs> here you go. You know, <laughs> we, you know, he had a translator and we spoke, he spoke Japanese and, wow. and we spoke many times, you know, and uh, the, the joy was getting to read his screenplay, which was like a small haiku he would write, you know, in Japanese, obviously, the translation was the red ants, the anthill. And there's like these just small hmm. descriptions that said everything. And then you'd have me put in these kind of Jewish, psychological, intellectual, <laughs> communist uh, prose, you know. And, uh, and I always tell this story, and I've, I've repeated it before, but I'll repeat it again because when you say prose, so when we, I love my prose when it's good, you know, hmm. and I'm proud of it, and it, it makes the scripts too long, but so be it. Um, uh, we were, when we were doing a table read of about uh, 30 people were there, Benjamin Button, and it was a long and a very prosy script. And uh, I forget who was reading the, the, the prose sections in between. And Brad Pitt announced, look at Eric, he's got a prose boner. <laughs> so, and there was probably some truth to it. <laughs> but but just, just to go back to Kurosawa, I mean, you know, for people who don't know, he was a legend at the time. And he had made all these incredible movies. And and to and this movie is very interesting because it deals with not only sort of an American who's married into a Japanese family, but also this whole specter of uh, the guilt of the the, the Americans dropping the bomb on the right. Japanese. I, and the and Japanese this was Nagas, it's supposed to be Nagasaki. Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah Nagasaki. Yeah. yeah. And 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 it's it's just such a spiritual, again, like a lot of your work, it's a very spiritual movie in that it's also has this wonderful thing of, it has an old grandma who you see the kids kind of being cruel to her, but then her kids show up who are their parents and they're worse. They're way worse. Yeah. <laughs> and then right. Richard Gere shows up and he's, it's really there to just be a part of everything and connect with their culture. And so it's yeah. really just a beautiful movie. Yeah, I about mean, humanity. honestly, I mean, I, I, I it, I, I didn't write that much on it. I mean, I wrote, I mean, I wrote whatever Richard Gere's in, I wrote, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and some few other things, but I mean, this was all that mass, you know, right. And, right. You know, right. That man made high and low. Come on. Right. Yeah. I know it's unbelievable. And I, I mean, I also love the scene just to one specific thing I was, I was watching that side is when they, when they make up his bed and he's saying, Oh, this is a great bed. This is a great bed. You know, all that stuff when he's connecting with the family is, and you know, is really lovely. And, you know, a strange side story that you might think is a little funny is so kazu the famous makeup artist right here worked on that film was hired on that film you might know this story that because dick smith had told i think kurosawa that this was the best makeup artist in japan interesting i didn't know that so he gets hired on the thing and there was a a argument between kurosawa and richard Gere. apparently kazu says this on a podcast that he Richard Gere for a second maybe wanted to have makeup to make him perhaps look Eurasian or something. Yeah. And he and Kurosawa battled it out and Kurosawa obviously won. But it's just yeah. so funny that Kazu, who worked on Benjamin Button, you guys have a little bit of a connection there through that film. Yeah, that's, I think that's it, interesting. Yeah, I didn't, it's I didn't wild. Know. Maybe he talked to me. I don't remember that he did. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing man. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kurosawa was uh, 
that was a very special thing for me. And I got a lovely thank you on the movie. So that, that's worth its weight in gold. Really beautiful. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about for, about Forrest Gump. It's funny. My, my dad always talks to me about this film. So my dad is an immigrant from Turkey who came here in his 20s as a young, doc, young doctor. And he absolutely loves that film. And his relatives in Turkey love that film. And he always talks about how does that film resonate all over the world the way it does? And I was just so curious to ask you with a little bit of perspective, what, you know, how did you approach sort of your version of, of that script when you started? And what do you think it is about that movie that speaks to people? Um, there's a simplicity to it. I think that, uh, I think, I think the, the through line, I mean, somebody the other day said to me that, you know, what you need to have a really good movie, uh, a comedy, maybe comedy included, is you have to have conflict of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the conflict is in Forrest Gump. It's just, it's <laughs> no, because it's just Candide. It's a guy going through life mm-hmm. and being moved around uh, as a metaphor with the feather by the wind. And he'll land here and he'll land there. And he's, you know, he's got two or three tenants. It's a, you know, it's a, it, it has mixed reactions to people some people really take uh, take it uh a little too seriously in the sense of uh you know they don't like to be made fun of so so there's some things with the black panthers and and a lot of that humor is a little more to zemeckis than mine because Mm -hmm. he's sort of an equal opportunity stick in the eye guy sure you know um i was more interested in this kind of uh, this idea of destiny and fate you know, about, you know, are we just floating around? And I wrote that one speech about that says it toward the end, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, and I think that's probably part of this duality you're trying to find within me here that about loss and about, you know, connection. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, eventually, you know, we're going to go on. And uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. And that's what I had him say. You know, I don't know if it's just, you know, if we're just, you know, going around. Uh, and I've always... Uh, what I think that it speaks to that all those things to people and I also because he's supposed to not be very bright, but he has mm-hmm. human qualities that he he's a guy who knows how to love, you know, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. yeah. he's also brave when he needs to be. And I mean, I, and it's connected in its own way. I don't think it's, 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 it's a different movie, but to being there, you know, yeah, yeah absolutely. So that's where Hal comes in, you know, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember I had when we had the premiere of um, of Forrest Gump. Uh, on one side was Jim Brooks, one of my idols and very close friends, still is, sitting. And the other side was Hal. And I and I was petrified. I said, what are they going to think of this stupid fucking movie? You know, because it's so ridiculous. And out there and Bob's and Becca's cartoon humor and everything else. And they love, they seem to love it. I don't know what they, their heart of hearts. Wow. Um, it's, uh, it, it, but I, I think it's just the humanity of it that speaks to people. And then you get the, you know, the sucker part of a guy who's supposedly, you know, not all there and mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. the rain man and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, anywhere I go, if I tell somebody I wrote Forrest Gump, they start shaking. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking, <laughs> I mean, it's like so weird a reaction. Yeah. Like yeah. it's yeah. so strange. Like they, they think it's some magical creation, you know? And it, and it obviously was magical for me, you know, yeah. not yeah. for everybody, but for me. No, it's a, it's, and it really kind of drives me crazy when people, I don't know, take an overly critical eye to it. I say, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's got elements of Don Quixote and, and, and well, that's the idea. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, I'm like, guys, Nothing, I mean, it's more, I mean, to me, the absurdity of what happens is more absurd than the fiction. 
Right. I mean, you know, that's why we have, you know, all these assassination attempts and guys getting shot and th- things that just you can't imagine that would ever happen. And it, mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, and um, there, it's all absurd, you know, and I think yeah. that's at the end of the day, or at least uh, uh, Quentin Tarrell says, the most ironic of mainstream movies ever made. And maybe there's truth to that, you know? Yeah, I think there is. I think there is. I I, I really do. Okay, so now I'd really like to talk about The Insider because I'm not kidding when I say it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that. I I love it so much. And now, just before I really get into it, you know, I've heard you say that you had sort of, you had reservations when the project first came to you from Michael Mann. And what I thought was interesting is I watched an interview recently of Russell Crowe going through all of his performance and he said the same thing. He said, I didn't understand how, why he wanted me for this. So I thought that was interesting that both of you had sort of the same reaction and what, what were your reservations? Well, I I had never written, I mean, to that, to date, I had never written anything with the kind of gravitas or the, the, you know, the sort of the docudrama of that. I don't even know what that was, you know? Um, And so I didn't know, by the way, I never knew I could do work on Mank either. And David said, you can do it. And, you know, he stuck and Michael's the same way. Yeah. You're going to, you know, so, cause I had also, I had a wonderful article by Marie Brenner that was in Esquire, a Randy Vanity Fair. Right. Right. Trace the kind of the history of the thing and who was in, who was out, what you needed. And, and I just sort of, uh, I tried it and I, I turned in a first draft for him and Michael and I had no idea it was any good. I, I knew it wasn't bad. You know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. And I, and I tried to do it. Um, I sort of understood the genre of um, uh, what would you call it? Um, I think corporate thriller. You know, I mean, to, yeah, yeah, a thriller. That, yeah. I, I think I, I I leaned on the thriller aspect in a, in a different way a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it felt like a, a few movies that you know I'm, I'm schooled in movies, so I, there's a little Mickey one to it. Um, there was a oh, little yeah. uh, All the President's Man. Absolutely. Um, totally. There was um, a Parallax View, a little of Paranoia. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those things kind of added up. And then there was kind of a – obviously, you also have this sort of wonderful relationship to the show 60 Minutes because you're doing a, a fiction in a way, but a docudrama, the kind of way they may have done it, but they'd have done a hard, inter- you know, hard interview and all that. So it's it interesting. I mean – the hardest part of it was that I didn't get to meet um, L- Wygand, Jeffrey Wygand, until oh. after the movie was done. Wow. And so I had to kind of imagine, you know, I, I also relied on Lowell Bergman, the journalist, and uh, who was a wonderful man, and uh, and Marie Brenner, but I didn't, I, I, so I had to make some, so I, I sort of said to myself, who works, who's a, he, he's a scientist, you know? Right. And right. who, who, what kind of scientists works for a tobacco company? He knows the dangers of the whole thing. And I, by the way, Michael and I smoke like chimneys. <laughs> and when we were working on it, writing it together, we sat at a place called the Broadway Deli in an area you could smoke. And, and, and then we would smoke in the biggest anti-tobacco lawyers <laughs> offices in America. And eventually, I, I've told the story before, but we finally decided we better fucking quit smoking, you know? And so we both decided to go to a hypnotist and we went uh, over here in uh, Brentwood area and, um, and uh, Michael went first and it was like an hour session. And then he waited for me like in a Starbucks or something. And I went and I, the guy, I don't, I obviously didn't want to quit, but the guy's voice drove me nuts. And the guy's voice was just so grating and irritating to me. And I came out and I said to Michael, he was sitting waiting, and I said, it didn't work for me. He said, it worked for me. I'm never smoking again. And he didn't. I don't think he ever smoked again. 
Um, it, it was a longer process for me to finally quit. Thank God. But, uh, well, that is, yeah. that's like a scene from an Almodovar movie that <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, so I, I, that's the one director. He asked me recently, like within the last year to do a short story book that he has, which is, it's called the, um, cleaning woman or something. It's American. And I said, yes. And we had a great meeting and I said, I'm so thrilled. He said, basically you, you get that you have the job. And I said, well, I'll be coming to Spain. I, I was so excited because there's very few directors left to work with uh, in a way. Yeah. And yeah. then he called and said, you know what? I have to say no. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't speak English well enough. And I'm concerned that we can't have a translate. I don't want a translator creating the creative emphasis, you know, emphasis on this. I want it between right. you and me. And I don't think I can tell you what I want. He said, maybe I'll come back to you after it's because uh, he wants to do the movie in English. So but, it's so it's so funny you say that he's been saying that for so long. His last movie, Julieta, which is not as good as Pain and Glory, but Julieta is based on a collection of short stories by Anne Lamott, right? And he was supposed it was supposed to have Meryl Streep in it, all this stuff. And he did the same thing. He said, I can't do it. Yeah, and he, he did just it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I got it, you know, because when we sure. were when we were meeting, his English was pretty good and I felt nuanced to me to some extent, but he 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 would rely on a woman who's a translator to, to you know to make it uh, really nuanced and so I was so disappointed I said oh wow, I, I love that idea of working for him you know oh and, man uh, that was a wonderful been... book of short stories and I wish I could remember the name of it because uh, I'll have to yeah I would love to read the it cleaning I... woman the something uh, I forget uh, so just about the insider um, the what I love about storytelling of the movie is that you you know you use chance really in the beginning which is that you know Lowell meeting Jeffrey Wygand is chance he needs someone to analyze these tobacco documents and he's referred to Jeffrey Wygand and then is that true or did you dramatize that no i think that was basically true wow. yeah, that was true wow. um what was dramatized was for instance i'm pretty good at this stuff which are just sort of genre stuff like where i start having him fax him he tries to call him, right? Oh my he doesn't God, it's answer, so good. right? It's so, so good. So then I, th I said to myself, well, how can he make contact? And then I have him fax him. <laughs> he waits and all of a sudden the fax comes back and you know, he's, it's Eureka, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, that scene I love for the sort of the, and also I think I, I loved what I created in the beginning, which was to do that 60 minutes episode of them because you right away get tension of them going into this, uh, it's you the know, best. Arab village and having to interview the uh, uh, Ayatollah. Yeah. Assassin. What do you think? What do you think I am? A 78 year old assassin? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's exactly. so brilliant. <laughs> and then the other scene, I, I think is one of the best scenes I ever wrote. And it goes to show you it's in its own way subtextual because it's ludicrous to a certain extent. It's the stuff David Fincher gets me very angry at me about <laughs> so that David really believes that things have to be logical. And I'm not saying that he's wrong, Sure. but we had a big, we had a whole thing in, in Benjamin Button where I, I, I don't know why he's just being fanciful. And I had uh, hell, uh, what's her name? Um, Brad Pitt in the hotel. Oh, what? Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Tilda say, don't take the tea out. We need to let it do this and that. You know, you just don't let it steep and blah, 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 blah. I made up some nonsense. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and David said, and where is this physics from, you know? And he <laughs> left some of it in. But so anytime we did anything, he said, is this your tea moment? <laughs> anyway, in that movie, I have Lowell Bergman uh, at the, on, the, on the island there in the Bahamas. 
uh-huh. and he's and he's got low and he's got uh, uh, Jeffrey, you know, Russell yeah, Crowe yeah. on the phone. Yes, yes. And Russell Crowe screaming, "I've told the truth!" Is one of the better scenes I've ever written by far. It's really and, wonderful. And Lowell is losing signal because he's getting bad cell signal there. And I have him keep walking into the water as if there's yeah. a logic. Yeah. You're going to get better cell signal if you can at least get away from whatever, you know? Yeah, I buy it. I totally yeah, I buy it. Yeah, I bought it too. I yeah. know. Well, it works great, you yeah. know? It's yeah. one of those moments that makes it a richer scene, you know, the detail of that. Absolutely. Because you, you, you and, and also just the image of him with against those storm clouds is so fabulous. Yeah, exactly. It's spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it's spectacular. And I, I, so a couple of, you know, because one of the things I really love about the movie too is that it's this, it's very much a, you know, Russell Crowe becomes a hero sort of by sacrificing his life. And then Al kind of becomes him. You know, there's this transference in my favorite. Yeah, the obsessive quality. Yeah. yeah, but but also even just kind of in the framing of it, there's the great scene where Jeffrey Wagon has to go see Sandifer in the office, you know, when he says, fuck you. And, and, oh, I don't think he got it. Oh, I think he did. You know, that it's so wonderful. And then there's the sort of other scene where they turn the tables on Lowell Bergman at, at BlackRock. Right, that, right. And and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, he's in the same scene that Jeffrey was in kind of in the beginning. And I just think that's so, it's just- Well, such- there's two or three things I can tell you, uh, just as an off the point, but an interesting screenwriting trick, which was Michael's, not mine. Michael felt early on, and he's not in favor of exposition either, hmm. but that we needed to inform the audience of what this guy kind of needed to go through. We had sort of signposts along the way. And so- we created that uh, uh, that scene in the uh, in CBS kitchen or whatever they're eating lunch. Ah, uh, yes. And they start at, and he says, "I need to get this guy a lawyer. I need to do this and that." And they they become like markings that we're where we succeeding or where we're not. Uh, and uh, that was Michael uh, uh. being analytic about how to line that up. Huh. Um, wow. The other thing was what was I going to say? Um, uh, oh, the scene. I think two parts of it. The scene with. Mike Watt with Christopher Plummer when he's he reveals he's got feet of clay when he oh. goes into the hotel room I think yeah. is as good as anything I've ever written. It's really and beautiful. the interesting thing was that Mike Wallace, the real guy, used to call me up <laughs> and say to me, "Who? What made Lowell Bergman the fucking moral arbiter?" You know, he says enraged at Lowell even you know, and he called me all the time and Don Hewitt would call me and. But with Mike, I would just wa- write down what he said. And we have a lot of those lines right in the movie. <laughs> you know, I think that moral arbiter thing is, is, is some version of that in the movie. What makes you what makes you the fucking moral arbiter of my, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He that I mean, I love I love that scene. I I uh I one the one, I guess maybe last question I want to ask you about the insider was you you made mention, I think it was an interview with John August when you had a three-page monologue for Al Pacino, and he yeah. said, I can do it with a look. Is it that, is it after Mike says, I'm with Don on this? Yes, exactly. Exactly. You're so smart because I had a whole thing about what is their profession about and why are they journalists and a whole thing. And Al called me and he said, he said, Michael doesn't know I'm calling you. I said, well, maybe that's a bad idea because he's going to flip out. And he said, no, no, just listen to what I have to say. I don't, it's, well, I don't think it's three pages. I'm, you know, right. probably a page. Right. And he said, I can do this with a look. And I said, if you can do it with a look, you know, God bless you. And he did. He did. So I, I think they, they may have shot him even reading the, you know, reading the thing, but he did. I mean, you know, you get actors who are so good. I mean, like Kate Blanchett would read a line and you go, that's perfect. 
And she said, but I could do it this way. And then that's perfect. And then after a while, you see all 13 different versions and each one is, you know, you couldn't imagine anything better. You know? Right, right. And I think that's sort of, that seems to be the thing you hear about, particularly movie actors, is that, that thing to do, to give you different looks and different versions of it, because it is a visual medium on some yeah. level, you know, and, and that's, that is amazing. Uh, but David, but with David, he doesn't want to change from whatever the intent of what he thinks it is. So that got it. Got it, got there's it, got none it. of that. I mean, I've been on other movies where there's a lot of improv and, you know, uh, impromptu stuff, but not with David. So I wanted to talk about, I want to get to Benjamin Button and, and, and working with David, but I want to take a little bit of a, of a detour, uh, you know, only because, you know, two things is that I know, I know you apparently, uh, House of Cards was supposed to be Michael Mann and Al Pacino. That's right. Uh, but right. we originally, Michael, I don't yeah. know, I, I think it was Michael who came to me. Let's just assume it was. And mm-hmm. said, take a look at this British TV show mm-hmm. and let's uh, let's make this into a movie with Al. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, and I, I saw that, you know, some of it. I don't know how much I saw the videotapes, I guess. And mm-hmm. I said, this is great. And I said, it's just Richard the Third, you know, Michael. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, I know. And I, he, I said, uh, yeah, and we had it. We had a sort of scheme to do it. And. I don't even know why it died on the vine. I mean, mm. the bigger question is, which I I always haunt Michael with it. I wrote a script called Comanche. That's as good a script as I've ever written about the Comanches. And it's, uh, it's the true story of the searchers. Mm. Um, the searchers is, is, is a fiction to the extent of when they rescue, was it Natalie Wood? Um, yeah. yeah. She's uh, whatever age, she's supposed to be nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's not what happened. They, they did rescue the woman, but she was 41 at the time, oh, wow. Mary, Mary Parker. Um, she was the wife, one of the wives of the one of the last chiefs, of, or the last chief, I think, or one of the last chiefs of uh, the Comanches. She was a fully indoctrinated, fully devoted to Comanche. She had been taken from at eight years old uh, as a wealthy person from a wealthy family. And uh, but she was now a native. American, uh, in her view, and she gave birth to the last chief of the um, of the uh, Comanches named Quanah Parker, who became very yeah. famous. Oh yeah, he yeah, yeah. He was also the last native to agree to go into the reservation, and why they how he, how they got him. The Comanches were incredible horsemen, and right. they were they rode in bands of seven or eight, and they could they they're like guerrilla fighters. Right, the king and, kings of the plain. I think they yes, call them. they're yeah. amazing, yeah. and they, they they were roamers. You know, the whole tribe. They never stayed in one place, but what they figured out, the army, because they could never beat them, they decided to kill all their horses. Uh, they rounded up all their horses as many as they could. They put them in a canyon called the Paladuro Canyon, um, and they shot all of them. Geez. And that's how they the, said so they had no nothing left. The, the commands. They walked into the reservation. Anyway, pretty great, huh? Yeah, that's pretty and, great. And Mary Parker went on to, when she went back, they sent her back to civilization to her family, thinking that's where she belonged. She had a child with her. Um, she was distraught as can be and felt uh, felt dishonored. And, and in their tradition, if you felt dishonored, you cut off your breasts, which she did. And um, wow. they felt very guilty, the, the Texans, and they had a whole ceremony in uh, Austin for her and they gave her, I don't know how many, like a hundred acres of land uh, to live on. And as sort of to say, we're sorry, but they built a like tourist 
uh, native uh, encampment where people would come and look at native teepees and everything. Wow. And she committed suicide there. Yeah. So that was, anyway, the script's great. And Michael, I mean, never, we got close a few times and he thought we should need more money to do it. And right, right, I right. still think it's one of those sort of one of those ones that got away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I just digressed. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I, you know, I guess what I really wanted to get to, you know, because uh, uh, just sort of in terms of your work in television, I, I really wanted to shine a light on luck um, for a different, many different reasons. You did it with Michael Mann, and more importantly, you did it with David Milch, who, when I heard you speak about him and your relationship with him on John August, I just found it to be so moving. Uh, oh, it's you like, know. I mean, I couldn't tell you anybody I love more on earth. David wanted Michael to direct it. Mm. And I said, Michael's, you know, obviously one of the great directors who ever lived, but you two are never going to get along. And then, and I said, he, you're not, you, you won't be able to take it, and he won't either. And in two weeks, he threw him off the set. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Because David, because Michael is in the best way, a control freak mm. and he can't have where a writer is sort of not sure what he wants to have said that day. He needs mm -hmm. to know what's going to be said. It can't be just made up on the, you know, mm -hmm. and David was far more uh, hippie about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't, I'm not saying who was right or wrong, but, it, sure. uh, but that was oil and water for those two guys. I, I think they respect and loved each other as artists, you know. And yeah, now David, and then David has a very bad Alzheimer's, and it's been sad watching his uh, his uh, deterioration of his that this mind. Uh, I, I think he's Shakespeare of a kind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, television, I really television. You know, I really agree with you, and I, I think I think that show is from. I missed it. I totally missed it. I rewatched it again recently. And I just find it to be such a beautiful tapestry of humanity in a very specific world. You know, it's, it's yeah, I know that world. I'm yeah. a big, I love yeah. flying horses. And, yeah. Um, I also, um, it, um, uh, it, it had in it, uh, I, I think one of the great best things I've ever written. There's two, two David Milch things that never got made. One was the fourth episode of the second season of luck, which I got to write. And it was, a, he let me do a one-off where, uh, and he would let me do that on various things with him. And uh, so I, I didn't have to stay with the story, even though ah, I stayed with part of it. Got it. Uh, and the storytelling in this episode was they're taking the horse when, in a horse van and they're driving all together the bums uh, to take the horse to race at Golden Gate up in San Francisco. Huh. And it's a road trip movie in that sense. And it's, the horse gets away and it's pretty great. And simultaneously, I have Nick Nolte discovering he has cancer. And he's starting to get cancer treatments. And I had the most amazing thing I did, I think. And it would have been spectacular. And I begged, I begged Dave was going to do it. I said, I want Pam Anderson to play his love interest in this. Because I wanted Pam Anderson to be also a cancer victim. And they're both getting chemo. But she's a woman who has lived in some way, I would say. And I knew her quite well. Because she lived in the same area I did. Who lived by her breasts, let's say. Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted her to be, have to be a mastectomy in it. So that was the sort of the heartfelt thing about it. And then she passes away in the show. So that was beautiful. I did another, David had another show that never got on that I think is sort of the precursor to succession. Mm. He had a show called The Money or just Money, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. was about um, uh, Brendan. Um, what's his name was the star of it? Gleason, Brendan Gleason. Brendan Gleason was starred uh -huh. in it. He only did the pilot. It was about a newspaper magnet, like a Murdoch type. Ah, ah. And um, 
sort of the rough and tumble world of his world and his his uh, not being the most loyal husband and his family. Yeah. And so there's a lot of similarities in a way to succession. But once again, he let me write a one-off. And this was to be, I forget, the fifth episode or something. We never got past the pilot, so it made no difference. But it was really fun because I got to write a short story in it. The story was that he went, was going to Atlantic City to buy a, a local newspaper. And while he's there, the hurricane hits, Hurricane huh. Sandy, and he's stuck there. And every, you know, they don't have any real food, nothing. He's in a Vegas hotel and he runs into an ex-girlfriend that felt a little like the uh, Fargo thing. And, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the end of it was, which was I thought was quite beautiful, was, um, and it, I thought it was really a good piece and as good as I write. And uh, he's getting a ride back into New York City and they're passing JFK. And he yells at the woman who's driving him, stop here, stop here. And she takes him and he gets out of the car. And he goes inside and he real because he realizes he could disappear. He could change his life completely. And he goes to the de ticket desk. He says, I want the first flight out of here to wherever it's going. We get, he buys a ticket. We don't know where he's going. He goes upstairs. He goes through with security. Blah, blah, blah. He goes to get on the plane and we stop. He just stops there about to get on the plane. You know what he's going to do. We cut and he's walking back across the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, he had, he decided he couldn't do it, but I always, cause I had always wondered in my mind, what do you do if you just change your life? You just stop and you go to live in Wichita or, yeah. you know, five, live in, five easy pieces, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I don't, I've only knew, I knew one person who actually did it. I, I didn't know him. I know somebody had a friend who did it and my, my friend ran into them wherever it was. And. So what's your life like? You said, my life is very, almost not different. And they were just different, different people. Different, <laughs> different people. people. Problem. Well, you got to take you with you, you know, is a problem. That's, yeah. that is, that is very, very true. I, and I just, and I, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, when I heard you talking about David Milch, it made me go and find some YouTube video of him. And there's a video of him actually, I believe it's during one of the Writers Guild strikes where he's talking to the Guild and he kind of tells the story of his life. Yes. And, and and it is, I mean, it is so unbelievable. You know, That's I mean, my, my favorite moment in the story is when he's talking about how he had just taken acid at Yale. He's And he proceeds to shoot out things with a shotgun. He then gets away. He escapes. And he says, you know, I'm running away. I've gotten away. And he says, and then the dramatic inadequacies of life set in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly how he is. So this was about a month or so ago. And usually I go with Judd Apatow comes with me. And we, we both are very fond of him. And, uh, and David said, which wasn't very profound. He said, doesn't life go quickly, you know, move quickly by? And I said, sure does. And I was thinking, you know, when I was, when I was 60, I said to myself, not so bad. I got 20 odd years, right? I mean, I, I can make that in a, in a walkover. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I blinked and I was 75, you know, so that was one. So then the second part was, I said to him, do you have any regrets, Dave? And he said, I wasn't generous enough of spirit, which he means that he was too selfish in certain areas where he, uh, he hurt his family, whatever. He did a lot of things he shouldn't have done. But I, I love that. So generosity of spirit, I, I, hopefully people try to be generous of spirit. You know? Yeah, we need more of that. That's, that was that's, David, yeah. That's, that's David. beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. Yeah. So I want to get to another David, to David Fincher, 
Uh, was Benjamin Button the first time you met him or had worked yeah, with? Him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was that? What was that like coming into? I didn't movie? really have any feeling about David um, one way or another. I just thought. I mean, I knew him as sort of the enfant terrible. People talked to him about him that he's genius, and and I, uh, I I get I get in. I forget what movies I knew of his. I mean, I I've I'd seen probably all, but I don't remember what was done at that point or what mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. like was. Was Fight Club after Benjamin Butler? No, it's before. It's before. before. Okay, so yeah, I've seen Fight yeah, Club. Yeah, 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 you're right, and I'm going to tell you why I know this because you're right. He, we were either. We, I think I was preparing Benjamin Button while he was finishing Fight Club. Oh wow, way. wow! I think in some way, and because I remember because they knew I used to box when I was growing up, and uh, they said there's these fights. You can go to a club like a bar, and and, and would you let's. Come on, Eric, let's go go get in a boxing thing. And I said, I would do that. But then people told me, like, guys who weigh 210 are fighting against guys like 120. I mean, there was like, I'm not going to do that. You no, know, Brad, no. are you a sucker or you're a coward or whatever? <laughs> Anyhow, I knew um, I knew a lot of his movies, and I thought this guy is the real deal. And he's, he's such an incredibly charismatic man um, who – he's not the most educated. I mean, I'm not sure he finished high school, hmm. but he knows things that you do, most people don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. he has some quality about him of uh, understanding of things. I mean, he's, he's irascible in certain ways. He's very tough. Um, and he sees the world through his own prism and not as, as uh, not as available, see it through other prisms sometimes, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I think he's, he's certainly the most, and I don't just say technically able, I think he also is the most understanding of so many things. I mean, uh, I will, I'll say of equal, I'm probably, I'm closer with, I am with David than I am with Marty uh, personally, even though Marty and I are like brothers. Uh, mm-hmm. Marty's kind of on the opposite end of him in the sense, even though they both probably know lenses the same way, even though David's probably a little more of a technical savant. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Marty is 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 a little more, uh, and I don't want to use the word generous un, unkindly because David's generous. But David knows just what he wants, and he wants a logic. And if you don't if you don't follow the logic of things, he wants to know why. And mm-hmm. you know he's willing to change if it's not, if it, but he has to understand it. And and I'm a little more fanciful than that. So mm-hmm. Marty encourages great imagination, and mm-hmm. and and David would say to you, well, "So do I," and you can't provide it. You know that's what he would say to me. <laughs> And I'll say, okay. <laughs> so that's what he'd say. And Marty would say, let's try this. You know, right. if I say, how about we do the movie? If I said to Marty, let's do the movie backwards, he'd say, that's interesting. Right. Let's have everybody walking backwards. He would try it. I mean, in other right. words, what the hell? Right, right. And he's he's just amazing. Um, and it's so my experience writing that, which was over the last five or six years, has been just incredible. I mean, so it was always permission to go try to do something Reinvent the wheel, if you will. And we're talking about uh, uh, Killers of the Flower. Kill, Kill, Killers of the Flower, which I but read. David, the, I, I read David, the book, David, by the way. Amazing. We'll, we'll get amazing. to that. That's going to be, yeah. I think, one of our great movies. I, I agree. I, I so, yeah. but David, David. Now, if you look at the body of his work, is like probably as good as it gets, right? I mean, he's yeah. a national treasure. I, I agree. Social network alone, you know, and then you add to it, uh, uh, you know, Fight Club and. Um, uh, um, and seven. And, um, I mean, all these, he, um, 
what really drives me what drives me a little crazy about people talking about Fincher is that they they love to say oh he's this meticulous cold removed person when to my mind he's actually one of the few people making movies about human beings number one you know seven is a, yes it's about a serial killer but it's really about you know men doing their job well, and obsession about the human condition human condition say. yes yeah yes. I mean I'd say. I was sort of startled because we, you know, Benjamin Button got like 13 Oscar nominations and everything. Mm -hmm. And and we got a, not a good review at all. It was pretty rough in, uh, in the LA Times. And and I was very angry about it, not because look, Kenny Turan could have liked the movie or not liked the movie, but he said the movie was cold and distant and that you couldn't really get it. And I said, let me, sh I, I knew Kenny very well. I said, this is just bullshit, Kenny. I said, let's go watch the scene where she's walking, holding that kid's hand. There can't be anything more sentimental than that. I mean, mm -hmm. where do you find that in that movie? I could understand if you think it's overly sentimental. That's a lot of people didn't like that. They felt it was too much of the Forrest Gump in me, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, certainly, and you know, it was so warm in so many places and felt like family. I didn't get it. I didn't get, they just didn't, they just want to piss on him. Yeah. So David, um, David has a group of us who gets to see all his movies when he's done with like a first cut. Hmm. And it's a great group. I mean, Bob Towns in there and, uh, it, you know, people, you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Spike Jones and uh, wow. Soderbergh. I mean, it's really quite a group. And uh, you're allowed to say anything you want. You know, if you hate it, you tell them if you think, and you know, mostly it's supposed to be stuff like, um, on Dragon Tattoo, I said to him, and everybody mostly agreed, I said, you've got four endings here, David. <laughs> Figure out which one you want. We'll make that work and help you. And he'll look at it, and he did some adjustments, but I think basically left it as the way he saw it. I remember he had a big fight. I won't name the executive with a per, uh, executive at Warner Brothers who on Zodiac said the movie's 20 minutes too long. And David, he said, will you please cut, the, you know, make it shorter. So David did whatever he did, and then they showed it again and he said, it's just, you didn't do anything. And David said, yeah, I tried. It didn't work. You know, and that was it. So that's David. David, <laughs> that, David I mean, now has permission to be David. He uh, has uh, that enviable position where he has a place where he has a home where they'll make the phone book if he wants to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, they'll support him in every which way. And uh, so uh, it's a wonderful uh, world for him that way, you know. And I also think he doesn't get enough credit for his very, very wicked sense of humor, which, you know, let's talk about Mank now, because I got to be honest with you. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the 30s Hollywood and Preston Sturgis and 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 Hawks and all those guys. And the film is such a love letter to that. That's what and, it was, yeah. Yeah, and it's hysterical. It's such, it's a beautifully made movie. Uh, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, Donald Burt, Don Burt said, tell Eric I love him. <laughs> uh, well, Don I love Don Burt. I, I, I may, I'll tell you something out of school, but I may do a play of High Noon as a drama. Um, and I, I actually with some, a producer named Paula Wagner have the rights to it. Wow. And um, she, and uh, I just wrote, I just gave Don the script to see, not my, but the original movie screenplay to see what will this look like, Don? He's a great, for people who don't know, he is a great production designer. Yeah, he won the Oscar for Benjamin Button and yeah. for Mank. And yeah. yeah, yeah, he's one of your great, and one of the nicest people that ever walked here. Just lovely. I mean, uh, and uh, he um, and he just sent me back his notes on what he thinks it should be described, how, how it would look, um, you know, what does this town look like, and how do you do it so you don't, you know, and have a wow. sense of a Western town and scope, wow. and it's really beautiful. It's amazing. It's amazing. That is amazing. I, I, you know, and, and so I'm just so, I know you're a producer uh, on, you know, I'm so curious on the film, what the script 
was like when it came to you? I mean, how much work, you know, well, we did, I mean, we sort of made a pact, David and I, because he really wanted to protect his father's voice. And uh, he said, I don't want you just rewriting this willy nilly. And I actually don't want you to do much rewriting at all, but I want you to go through it with me and where we can rearrange things, where we can add a line of dialogue here or there, where we can change a word to make it better. And, and, and in areas that you understand better than my father ever could, you're sort of an inside Hollywood guy. So you understand a lot about Hollywood. He never had a clue. And he certainly didn't know what it felt like to be a screenwriter because he had only done one, maybe two screenplays. Mm -hmm. So you live this. So whatever you can add to that. And we would get up, we would start to, uh, uh, at five or six or five thirty in the morning. We would, um, uh, as we were pre-preparing the thing, we would, uh, we would zoom or Skype, whatever, and go word for word uh, over every scene and wow. play with it, but not where I did any real rewriting. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if, if I put in for credit, I wouldn't get it. Okay. I mean, I didn't do that kind of work. Right. Um, and I'm also, Oh, I'm also yeah, no, just saying, but he offered, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me produce, yeah. he offered me to produce it with him or, mm. you know, with his wife, Tian, and mm. a man named Doug Urbanski was Gary uh, Oldman's manager. And I said, I don't know anything about producing, but I'll show up every day. You know, I did. And I learned everything I could and I enjoyed it. I loved, I loved being there. I loved being his eyes and ears, loved arguing with him every day, you know, because yeah. he loved to fight with me. And um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's a joy. I mean, and I like, I'm, also old enough and have earned certain credits to, you know, what he respects me, which is nice. You know? Yeah. I, I, and it, it sort of speaks to, I think, you know, one of the reasons this podcast is called because we love making movies is it's based on this tradition on Tarantino's set where he'll say, Hey, let's do another take. Why? And then the whole cast and crew will say, because we love making movies. And to me, it just represents that if you get to make movies with people, short films, feature films, et cetera, it becomes a family, right? I mean, it's, it's not just- It's wonderful. I mean, the, the opportunity I was looking today, so I'm about to do, we'll see if this was a good move or a bad move. I decided I'm going to write Sherrod's story. I saw that. Yeah. So, Congratulations. I mean, a little out of the blue, right? So yeah. then I'm looking at the comments, which were incredible. It feeds off of her who wrote a Twitter and, mm. and then she was very loving about me and- you know, how great it is I'm going to be on board and that it might be really a serious movie, which I hope it will be and really something that has something to say. And I'm trying to figure out how to tell this story. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was looking and people then were starting to comment on all sorts of my movies. Hmm. And the one that stuck out the most to me in a bizarre little way was a little movie I made with a, an artist named J.R., which is called Ellis. <laughs> um, with Bob De Niro, which is about Ellis Island, and it has a little story. Look, oh, oh, yeah, the short. It's a short, short. right? Yeah, 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 it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Fifteen yeah. minutes. Yes, yes, it's yes, yes, yes. So beautiful, though. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I, I was so I love that people responded to it. You know, what I'm saying that they remembered yeah. that, so that yeah. yeah, you know, it's as important to me as maybe working with Kurosawa in that way. But you, right. the, the point being, I get, I get to enter these little worlds and try to write something that becomes a, a, a memory for somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. And uh, uh, so I have one quick question about Mank before we go, go on to Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, uh, I've noticed on Mank, and not now, I may be talking out of school, but I, I was re read a book called Writers in Hollywood that it, it and I know because James Brooks mentioned it. So I was like, okay, I got to read this book about writers in Hollywood. And what I loved about it is that you can find in that book what happens in Mank. I mean, like, like the, literally the, the, 
the the real life journalism sort of of that moment. And I just I just imagine I just thought to myself, wow, you know, Jack Fincher had the had the foresight to you know, build a story around this perfect little moment in, in Hollywood. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that, yeah, I, he, so is he that, understood that, I mean, I think that's one of the great strengths of the script. So you couldn't, and he understood the kind of, um, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, that these guys felt like they were slumming these writers, mm-hmm. you know, that they love the money. So they were hypocrites to a certain extent. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, and the big thing for me in the movie is, uh, you know, here's a man who wanted to write something of value and he finally mm. did and he wasn't going to get credit on it. You know? Right, right. So. And, and, and the last thing I'll say is, which I think is a really great revelation, which I think speaks to screenwriting in general, is that people don't really know that Herman Mankiewicz was the guy who came up with the idea for the black and white opening right. of The Wizard That's of right. Oz, which, which, by the way, is such a screenwriting thing to do, right? That you can only do that in a movie. Well, I mean, it's a great discussion. So... That's why we harp on it in the movie. We sort of make fun of his, like, his, that he says basically that fucking Wizard of Oz. Right. right? It haunts him. Right. It just haunts him because he got fired after that. I, right, I right, right, but right. That was, and, it, it, and, it's, and it's an old discussion. So, Writers Guild, as you know, has these credit wars between writers, which is not healthy. And hmm. I, I wish we had, uh, I wish we would adopt a, an additional writing by credit so hmm. that everybody was acknowledge who i mean you can decide whether somebody should be in the front or the back but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these people everybody has some you know hand in it whatever rewriting you even did so mm-hmm. one of the classic conversations is well you turn in a script about a huge magnet newspaper magnet who was you know as powerful as anybody in the world richest man in the world had a giant house the xanadu um you know had it with this the woman he loved this actress and you know and he and we get to know everything about his life and he dies and uh, you see sort of the emptiness of it. And yet what was, what filled him up? And, um, and so you turn that script in that citizen came, you, you get your credit, you know, mm-hmm. and then they give it to somebody else to take a look. And that person does only two things. He writes on the first page, Rosebud and on the last page, Rosebud. And I say, he should get credit too. <laughs> Period. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So if somebody asked me yesterday, the other day, and I, I'm curious what you think, to name th- the three screenplays I'd recommend for students to read. So I said, I don't think I can do that. I can name you a hundred. But if I, he said, you have to. I said, okay, I would recommend uh, Chinatown. That's it. That I'd, was recommend, say, yeah. I'd recommend The Godfather 2. Yep. And I said, and this one was an odd one, and I, I'm not sure I'm even right. And you, you tell me, and I said, my favorite movie of all time, I'd recommend the screenplay for 2001. Oh, yeah. So yeah. now I don't know if that's really a screenplay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know I, the answer. I, I, I think it is. I think I think what's interesting about 2001 is there's a great documentary on, uh, uh, I guess, two things about the script. You know, 2001 is a great documentary, Life in Pictures, about Stanley Kubrick, right? And Brian Aldiss is in it. And he says, you know, the thing about Stanley, and he says in his very refined British accent, was he said, all you need for a movie is four fairly good non-submersible units, which are stories. <laughs> and he's like, and you string them together, and that's the film. And then you look at 2001 and you go, huh. That's actually kind of what he's talking about. Well, and, yeah. <laughs> the genius, and I'll, 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 I'll dovetail this with another movie of mine. So I, I was one of the writers on Dune. 
I yes, was the first yes. Writer. I mean, I, I, I'm an old hippie, and I took a lot of hallucinogenics, and I wrote a very hallucinogenic script, and uh, and I think I captured the spirit of what maybe Dune should have been, mm-hmm. if it isn't, mm-hmm. and uh, it certainly I think inspired Denis to keep that as the beating heart of it to a certain extent. You know, but mm-hmm. he would have had it anyway because he loved that, and then he shrunk it, which it needed shrinking. I had written a you know, full blown thing, and then. Um, they brought in another writer to kind of ground it because I was done. I was basically done. I needed. Mm-hmm. To, I was moving on to kill mm-hmm. So, um, but I. But then recently, um, I was asked by somebody, and I'm not going to mention what it is, but another book by Arthur Clarke um, from the '70s that I, I read, and I and I was, and I was so taken by it that it, it's 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 a little clunky, but the but the architecture of it is so amazing about, I'll tell you what, Rendezvous with Rama. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It's amazingly great, how great, it, yeah. when you're 76 years old, how it's, it's, it's frightening in one, in certain respects about eternity because it's the vastness of things and um, the silences. And, uh, uh, and as I hope something I can write, we'll see if they'll let me down the road. But um, uh, it, it made me think again of Dune and uh, at least in 2001 that yeah yeah incredibly no matter i know all the prescience about spacesuits and uh, all that stuff but the idea of this uh which is never going to leave this cosmology of uh, our lives and, and, the, and the enormity of uh you know god if you will or of not god if you won't um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's i think it's an extraordinary thing and i don't i, I haven't i haven't seen it ever duplicated really um in that sense I agree with that. I mean, I also think to your point about saying that's a good screenplay to look at is like, yes, of course you have screenplays that are dialogue and structure and this and that. But then if you think about cinema, what you were talking about, Kurosawa. It's a visual quality. Yeah. yeah. It's a vi- and also. And otherwise, like, you know, yeah. obviously you mentioned Butch Cassidy because it had a, it had a, uh, something that changed the form where you all of a sudden were engaging the audience, the reader. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, 20 others, you know. From, yeah. Uh, but, but to write a script, like you were saying about Kurosawa's script, you know, to write a script that can just be perhaps a visual spiritual experience is also an art, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, it's very hard. Look, Marty yeah. tried it with the silence. Right. And like I think movie. he succeeded to some extent and not to others. And he would tell you the same thing. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about Martin Scorsese. So you are, you have written for him, Killers of the Flower Moon. Tell us what the, what, what the book is about and then what the movie is. Book's 18, uh, Oklahoma, um, the poorest people probably on our planet, or at least close to it, are the Osage that were forced there in their own trail of tears. Um, they live on shitty land uh, in a rocky kind of outcrowding above the plains in Oklahoma, and they discover oil. And they become overnight uh, as rich as anybody is in America as a group. And they they enjoy that. They build McMansions, they buy fly airplanes, they buy boats, whatever they do, cars, mm-hmm. Rolls Royces, and they have white uh, servants and everything else. They live a whole dream life. Mm. And into that comes every creep, hustler, con man, and killer known to man to get their money. And, uh, and they literally kill 180 of them. Um, and in one particular case, there's a family that is, gets, is getting slaughtered by, uh, uh, I don't want to tell too much. Sure, sure, of course, of course. You know, there's a bad guy who's, who's orchestrating things and he uses his nephew as part of it. And um, Bob De Niro is going to play 
you know, the sort of villain of the piece. And Leonardo is playing, Leonardo was originally going to play the hero, uh, which is a guy who comes into all this, this a guy who's a Texas Ranger, uh, and in the first class, the FBI, and he kind of cleans everything up. And yep. uh, he's a wonderful character in real life named Tom White. And, Tom White, yeah. Uh, Jesse Plemons is playing him. Oh, so fantastic. Yeah. And Leonardo decided, and I don't think, at first he threw me because I had already worked on it for like four years or whatever. But um, I think he made a very smart decision to try to do something that was a little more complicated. I don't think he felt like he could be quite Gary Cooper. Hmm. I'm not sure Jesse Clemens is either, but in other words, he didn't feel the sort of the gravitas he could play with that kind of character. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he took a way more complicated character who was very torn about his feelings about uh, being in love with uh, his wife and what he's doing with her. And it's, it's complicated. And he's sort of Montgomery clipped, I'd say from, uh, oh. uh, you know, uh, yeah. Red river or, uh, uh, no more, um, you know, with those with tail. Oh, oh, pla- a place in the sun. Uh, place uh, yeah, the sun. yeah. 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 Place a little sun, more yeah, of that. Yeah. 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 So it's going to be spectacular, I think, but it's a, it's a great, it's a Western by any other name. Right. So he gets to be John Ford. Um, uh, uh, he, um, it, it, it feels and smells like a Western. It has all the ethos of a Western, even though it's 1920s and just beginning of cars being there and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and this kind of, we were both most interested in making sure we were, we showed how culpable white people were in making the the natives disappear. Right. Um, Right. That's sort of the metaphor. And you know what's really interesting about it for a couple different reasons. I mean, I'm a huge I I owe a lot of my education to cinema to Martin Scorsese, particularly, you know, watching this documentary he did called My Personal Journey Through American Cinema, where it's him kind of and for I had no appreciation for Westerns, really. I grew up on Raiders of the Lost Ark and the spectacle before I got into, you know, f- more serious films, et cetera. But he really taught me what the Western was and is. And so what I was amazed by, oh, he, he's never made one, you know? And now we're going to get a Western when he's at the peak of his power. I, I, I believe yeah. you will. I mean, yeah. from everything, I, 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 I will see what he's kept. Of, I mean, I think he's kept almost everything I've written, but yeah. I, I think hopefully he'll keep, he'll keep the spirit of someone where I have literally, um, where I've channeled my best Doc Holiday. <laughs> and have you know like a, a guy that's the, that our that our t- FBI guy is interviewing who is an old kind of gunfighter who's laying in a flop house on a bed with his gun on the windowsill. Wow! And who's dying? And uh, whether he does it or not, I had him sing "Streets of Laredo." You know what I'm saying? So yeah, 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 whether more yeah. he does that, I don't know. Might be too much. But the point being, you get a feeling for this passage of the time and of another era and. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of those moments, um, and plus this glory of the Native Americans' culture. I mean, mm. which, which you'll see. I mean, the spiritual quality of it, and the how much we we, we owe to the Osage as to who they were and what we want to have remain. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's. I I hope he pulls it off. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm assuming yeah. he will. I mean, because I can't imagine he knew he knew it far better than I did by the end of the time I got done writing. And now he's, you know, a month into filming. Right. And I also think the other part about it that's very Scorsese is that it. Rem- when I read the book, and everyone should read the book if they haven't read it, 
it reminded me a lot of Age of Innocence because the violence in this story is from society. Yes, yes, it's yes, it is physical violence, but it's the insidiousness of, oh no, we're fine, we're going to take care of you. But but no, there's this. It's almost yeah. like I mean, I'm doing this in the most blatant way that a shopkeeper is sweeping the street and sees the body of a Native American laying on the sidewalk, and he steps over him to continue sweeping the street. Absolutely. I mean, I, and that's as bad as exposition I could write for you, but that, <laughs> but that's it. And, and Marty does, I won't tell too much about it, but Marty and I, and I think Marty really, you know, compelled me to write the felt, the sense of culpability of the, mm -hmm. of the town that's not, not spacing their demons, you know, and when they should be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that we do that, you know, we, we, we look the other way, all the things that are cliche in a way, but that, uh, He'll, he'll be able to translate that into some sense that'll be amazing. And how much fun is it to work with Marty? I mean, how- Oh my how, God, it was like every day was I couldn't wait to get there to him and then I didn't want to. And he was, <laughs> he was the same way, he's like a kid. And, you know, it's a great thing because they're giving him, you know, oodles of money and he can imagine anything he wants to and anything we want to. And I, I wish I could tell you a couple of things that'll be in it, but I can't. Of course, I understand. Uh, but. No. Uh, uh, they're amazing where, you know, he said, let's start with this. And we began with a certain thing and then we kind of kept expanding on, it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the thing that we started with without me giving it away, he, he said, I want to do a really long tracking shot. And he said, that means you're going to have to write for each of the people that are along the way a vignette of what they're doing. Wow. And so those 60 of those are just, you know, somebody doing this with their kid and somebody doing that. So it's like, and that's the detail orientation or in, of yeah. Marty. So God yeah. being in the details. Of course, of course. Yeah. No, it's a, it was a joy. I mean, every moment was a joy. Yeah. And just, just to kind of, you know, as we're, we're close to the end here, I'm just curious. Um, and it, cause this reminds me of a story about Marty when he was being interviewed about departed. And he said, you know, he said, one day I was on set and I was tired and I was cranky. And, and then we were filming the scene where Leo runs up when Martin Sheen's character gets thrown off the, building and hits right. the ground, right? And the blood hits his face. And he said, Leo did this thing where he, you know, he caught the blood and Marty said, oh, that's it. That's it. You know, and, and, it, and, it, and it reignited his sort of fire for- Yeah. Well, that's him. I mean, he needs to, I know when we first started working on this to some extent, um, oh no, I guess that's not true. Uh, we had worked for a while, but he, he was- he was he he reaches a stage where he says i don't know if i should do the irishman you know he now second guesses everything mm. and there was one little moment he told me about of some improv with like i want to say pesci and bob de niro that made him realize well oh of course i know i have to do it you know if, if only for this little moment i think it might have been that great thing with the they take give him his glass took the glasses and then gave them back to him when they come back to the car oh yeah 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 i think yeah, that yeah. is it was it glasses or was it was a watch or glasses i think it, glass, it, it sunglasses be, maybe it's sunglasses i think it is sunglasses yeah I so he so. Yeah. he he leaves the glass he takes them off i think and then he goes and does the killings he comes back and gives him the sunglasses there was yeah. some little thing like that some subtextual thing that that reignited him and i'm I know he was, you know, it was a rough year for Mario, the pandemic and not being able to plan when he could shoot killers. And, and I'm sure he lost interest for a while, but he had to rev himself up again. And it was, I feel what he told me was one of the little things that he said, oh, my God, we have this moment. I think I can't give it away what it no, is. No, no, no. It, it's, it's, 
In other words, it just reignited his enthusiasm. So I'm sure that he'll have moments while he's filming and he'll say, what the hell am I doing? Right. <laughs> well, know, and, actually, and actually, my my question actually, though, was, you know, do you still, you know, has something like that, that you know, have you read a, read a, seen a movie or read something recently that makes you feel that way? You know, I it seems like you're not jaded at all. It seems like you're still excited and you still love oh, it. I, I'm thrilled about it. I mean, I don't know what, um, yeah, I read, uh, I, I read a lot. So I, I just read, I just read that this inspired me, George Saunders, the great short story writer. Yeah. Right? He has a book out that um, is basically a, uh, a, a primer on his course he teaches in writing at Syracuse. Oh, wow. What he does is he, 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 he gives you a, a, an assignment to read three Russian short stories as you're reading the book. And then he talks to you about it. And almost if he could reach out to you, he would ask you questions. Would you take this? And he did it in such a way you felt part of a whole class. And wow. it was inspiring. You know, it's like, I love, I mean, I love this book, Hamnet. It really touched me about Shakespeare's son dying, which is a fiction. I mean, so there's always things in music. I mean, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, Cher was singing something the other day. It was so beautiful, you know. I mean, it was like just so touching. And uh and I also, I always, um, I mean, I have my down moments like anybody, but I feel so blessed to be able to now, you know, now I'm struggling. How am I going to tell share story? I don't know. You mm -hmm. know, and how do I do it? So it's different. Mm -hmm. People are assuming I'm going to do some sort of various sort of variation of stars born. Sure. In some way. And, sure. And I, I want to sort of figure out what did she, does she mean to people? You know, what, what is the end result of all of it? I mean, you know, no question, wonderful entertainer and mm -hmm. personality. And I've known her for years and I love her personally, but I want to figure out what will make this transcend a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not a, I mean, I did one biopic that I think didn't entirely work. I think it was as close as we could have got was uh, Ali. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what I'd have done different. I think we, we might have messed up the ending, Michael and I. But I think we were also under a giant handicap because I remember when he asked me to do it, and I and I loved Ali. I actually knew him fairly well, and uh, um, and before you know the movie, and I said, "You're never going to make a better movie than one of the kings." I'm just telling you, you and I are never. I don't care how good. And Michael didn't disagree, you know. <laughs> so I mean, the spirit of that, and if we could capture him and announce that, but I say on that movie. He did do something extraordinary that we figured out together that the first 12 minutes of the movie, there's not a line of dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's, all Sam, it's all Sam Cooke singing. Yeah. And it's amazing what it tells and how you can use film and everything. So Absolutely. And, and my favorite part about that movie, I mean, I love that movie. I, I know I've heard you say, you know, what you just said about it, but I, I love Jamie Foxx's performance. I, I oh, think he was it, great. He was great. He it's, was great. Un, it's unbelievable how unrecognizable he is. And to yeah, me, it's, right. it, it's just, he just vanishes. Uh, yeah, uh, he's amazing. He was amazing. Uh, yeah. The amazing. whole movie was a great experience. You know, it just, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I, I, we did something not right at the end. And I don't even know what it is. That's what I would say, you know, that about a few times in my movies. Sometimes mm -hmm. you, you don't see it until it's too late. You know? Sure, sure. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Well, Eric, I don't want to take. I mean, I've taken so much of your time You've been already. Enjoy. You've been great. Yeah, I love with you. This is a nice conversation. I'm yeah. so glad. I'm so glad. This was an yeah. honor to talk to you. Really, so oh, much fun. Awesome. Just so much fun. You know honor, what I mean? Honor. Right. Honor. Honor. That's honor. it.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.